Well, good morning, Sierra Grace. It's great to be with you. It's, there's a lot of you this morning, so now I'm feeling nervous. So it's been good to um, be a part of this study on the Psalms. I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was last spring, Brian came into his office and he and Rachel and a team have been working hard on this. And he said to me, Todd, you're preaching Psalm 8. And it was like, whoa, deja vu, because um, in 1996, I was in seminary and one of my last terms, I was taking a seminar on the Psalms, and it just so happened that on the first day of class, I was at a family wedding in California, so I missed it. And when I came back from um, that wedding and went to class the next day, they had a Psalm to me, Psalm 8 too. So it was, uh, you know, fair come about as with that. But when I was thinking about Psalm 8, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you will be shortly... Psalm 8, like Brian told us last week, is not your typical psalm. If I was to say the two main categories of psalm in the Psalter, there are what we call psalms of thanksgiving or praise, and they're either an individual or a community that does them, and expressing to God our thankfulness for his salvation, for his caring for them, and that's a pretty typical psalm, right? And then there's also um, the next group of psalms is called psalms of lament, and every once in a while life gets hard, doesn't it? And God doesn't say, suck it up and deal with it. He says, tell me about it. And that's what a psalm of lament is. And those two categories dominate um, the psalms. But there's these two other kinds of psalms. One is called a wisdom psalm that Brian preached on last week. And the one we're going to take a look at today is called a creation psalm. And one of the questions when I studied this a long time ago that's kind of stayed with me is what does a creation psalm have to do with the psalms? Why the topic of creation? What is it, isn't the psalm supposed to be about poetry and prayer? What's science and creation doing here? Why is it here? Let's go ahead and, and uh, Shana, can I have you skip forward? We're going to read Psalm 8. Skip forward to the, the verse 1. Let's read it together and then we'll try to answer that question. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All the flocks and the herds, the wild, the animal, excuse me, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Shana, slide two. Thanks. Why is it we call it a psalm of creation? I think it's pretty obvious, right? The first thing that we see is that God is said to have set the moon and the stars in place. In the same way I pick up this microphone and move it from one side to the other side of the stage and set it in place, that's what God did with all of creation. Notice the ease of that. I even did it with two things going on at the same time, right? That is impressive. Thank you for noticing me. (laughs) The next thing that we see is we see the language of creation, don't we? 
the flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. You read the end of the creation count in Genesis 1, and you will see the same groups of animals listed in almost the exact same way. This psalm that we have here, Psalm 8, is about what do we make of God in light of Him as the Creator? How is this poetry affecting our understanding of God as in creation? And I know, because I'm one of them, that sometimes when we start talking about creation, us Christians can get all riled up, huh? We get afraid. Those scientists, they're out to get us, right? And it's true, some of them, most famously Richard Dawkins, are out to get us. But you know what? I've heard a preacher or two in my life that I thought might be out to get us as well, right? I'm not sure it's science that's out to get us, but the scientist. But the real reason that sometimes when people get all upset about the relationship between science and Christianity that I get all riled up is because I love my scientist, right? Check out the hair on that good-looking dude. Yeah. But it's not about me, right? I know. Impressive, huh? I can remember the day I was in seminary as well, and I was reading a book, and I looked down, and there were all these hairs on my book, and I'm like, oh, no, I am in so much trouble. So, Most of you, some of you might not know that before we came to Auburn, my wife... Um, she still is a scientist, was a vocational scientist at the time. Maybe she, she's a teacher now, but um, she worked before we came here at a bu- uh, several different places. She worked at NASA, the Veterans Administration Hospital in Palo Alto, and then when we were in Australia at Flinders University. And what she did when we were there is she studied bone density. So NASA is interested in your bone density because when you go up into space for a long period of time and there's no gravity, your body doesn't add strength to your bones and you come back down and they can be weaker. So if we want to send someone to Mars and it's going to take five years to get there with no gravity, that's an important issue. But maybe more important than that is if any of you suffered or know someone who suffered from osteoporosis, and that is the disease of the lack of bone in your hips and stuff that causes like old people to break their hips when they fall, right? So she did research on simple things like, well, things like how um, our bones remodel, um, can we drill a screw into it without stripping it out? Because it's bad if you strip out a screw in someone's hip, right? Um, and, and things like that. And so before, um, in that period of our life, um, and it started with Tammy when she was in college. She got an intern or a summer job working for NASA, which continued um, until we went to Australia, basically. Um, and we spent a lot of time with scientists during this period of time. It was from the beginning of our marriage until we left, um, and we learned a lot about them. The first thing that I learned about these scientists is they are an intensely curious people, okay? They want to know how everything works, and a lot of times they think they can make it better. And then the other thing I learned about scientists is that, you know, they don't think of the big picture questions all the time. Mostly what they focus on are these really small questions. So if you ask Tammy what leg connects to the hip bone, she might not know. But if you ask her how bones remodel, she can give you a very long and boring answer, okay? And I saw this over this period of time. What they would do in this lab that Tammy worked with at NASA, they'd have dinner where all these folks would come to Tammy's boss's house and we'd cook a meal together and then they'd sit around and talk. 
But these guys didn't talk about the same things that we all talk about, right? Um, the, one of the very first meals I had at Rob's house, Tammy's boss, is we had this wonderful meal, and then they sat around figuring how they were going to design a bicycle to make it more efficient. Stupid me, I thought bikes worked pretty good. But this conversation went on for over two hours on how we can make it more efficient. And apparently recumbent bikes are more efficient than upright bicycles. And I don't know what they were talking about, but I was like, where's the game and what time do we leave, Tam? So I can remember, again, it's like I said, so they they think different. Right? It's, they're, they're just different and they want to make it better. But the other thing they do is they usually, like Tammy's specialty was about this big, right? They are a people that focus on one little problem and try to remove all the variables so that they can solve it. Which came to light to me on another party I went to. And do you guys remember the shot? Christian Leitner made a shot over Kentucky to send him in the final four. No, you're so um, it was a big, well, it was a big deal to me at least because I was a Duke fan. And uh, I was at this party and I'd just seen him make this historic shot in college basketball. And I was talking to one of these um, scientists that Tammy was working with and I was telling him about it and how it happened and all that. The guy looked, you ever been in that conversation where the guy you're telling something to, you can tell has absolutely no interest in what you're talking about? That was this dude. I don't even think he knew there was an NCAA tournament, right? Um... Because his world was small. It was about bone remodeling. That was it, right? He didn't know people played basketball. He didn't care people played basketball. That's who they are. But the most amazing thing happened when we hung out with these folks. Is that, like I said, they're curious. And uh, and I'll brag on her because she's not here today. She's off doing Christmas shopping in October. So there you go. I'm telling you. Um, She's really good at her job. And over a period of time, she really gained the respect of her colleagues for doing it well, right? Helping manage this thing, and they were publishing papers and making a difference. And uh, they would watch her, and then, you know, I'd come to the parties with them, and they'd watch me, and they're like, what in the world are these two things doing together? (laughs) And they'd watch, and they'd watch, and we'd hang out. I can remember... We were at a a Giants game. No, I didn't plan it, but it was fun with her people at work. And I'm sitting there, and this is when Pac Bell, AT&T, Oracle Park, whatever you want to call it, was just open. There's a big, tall wall in right field that's 309 feet from home plate. And I said, well, it's close, 309 feet's close. I was talking to Tammy's boss. We were leaning on the rail, the the right, and, uh, and he says, it's close, but the wall's high, so how far do you have to hit it? And I was kind of just a rhetorical question, right? The guy next to me says, well, the optical angle to hit it would be at 45 degrees. And so if you, and he figured it out for me. He said it was about four, 340 feet you had to hit it to get it over that wall. So that's what they do, okay? <laughs> they specialize in these minute, repeatable aspects of life. And they talk their own language, right? Sometimes when you listen to them, like, she, her, you know, one of my questions I'll ask people, what's your perfect day? Tammy's perfect day is in a room closed up with an article on a computer and no sound or music, right? That drives me crazy. Um, but that's who she is. And they talk in a certain way. This is what scientific language sounds like. This is just a little page from Tammy's dissertation. It says, computational situations incorporating 
this model have produced realistic distributions of bone density and calcaneous bone models and predicted cross-sectional morphology during growth and development in cortical bones, indicating some biological as well as theoretical validity. Can I get an amen? Amen. What in the world does that mean? Who knows? But at least she gave us a picture to explain it, right? This is what scientists do. I promise you, she is not out to get you. She's out to help those people whose hips break, right? But you know what scientists can't do? They can't ask, answer the big questions. The kind of questions that we really need to know the answer to. That affect the way we live day to day to day, huh? Questions like, who is God? What's he like? Is he good? Questions like, where did I come from? Am I an accident or am I carefully made? Am I important? Do I have a purpose and a function in this world? And how should I live? Those are the kind of questions that are so far beyond what science can do. Those kind of questions are the language of power and poetry. Prayer and poetry, aren't they? And that's where we're at today in Psalm 8. We're at the junction of prayer and creation, where the language that God used to answer those big questions is poetry and not scientific mumbo-jumbo. So let's go ahead again with that in mind, knowing that what God is doing for us is speaking to us about who he is by the world he created around us and what our place in it is. He's trying to help us answer those questions. Who is he? Isn't is he good? Where did I come from and what's my place here? Am I important and how do I live? And that's what Psalm 8 is trying to do for us. So listen again. I'll read it for you this time. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have set your glories in the heavens. And through the praises of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? This is what he does. You have made them, being us, right, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. He's given us a purpose and a job to do. You put everything under our feet, all the flocks and the herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you are good, and we thank you that your name is majestic, and we thank you that you know us, you love us, and you've given us purpose. And in that today, we give thanks and we worship you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing to always pay attention to is the beginnings and the ends, right? The beginnings and the ends. If you're watching a movie, always pay attention to the very first thing you see. Because most often it will tell you what the point of the whole thing is. And in our psalm, Psalm 8, I hope you've noticed that verse 1 and verse 9 are the same. 
And the key point of this whole thing is that the Lord is worthy to be praised and his name is majestic in all the earth. We could spend a whole Sunday talking about this biblical theme of names. Names aren't just, you know, the way names work in our societies. Let me see if I can find something that's creative and isn't overused um, and sounds cool, right? In their words, names were an indication of the character of the person. And you will notice over and over again, when God is going to use someone in a spectacular way, most often he renames them, doesn't he? Abraham was named, renamed to father of a murmur. When God was going to use him, he gave him a name that indicated how God was going to use him. Sarah, his wife, was renamed to princess. Naomi, remember that story? Starts out with the name Naomi, that means pleasant. She goes and ends up being an outcast and all of her family dies and she changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. And when God restores her again, she's called Naomi a third time, right? And finally, Peter, who I said in the first service, sometimes reminds me of one of the three stooges, right? Um, God, Jesus renames him Peter, which means what? The rock, which your church will be founded on. The character and the purpose that God has planned in you is all summed up in this name. So when we say, how majestic is your name, we're speaking of the character of God himself. Creation reminds us of God, huh? How many of us have had that experience? Even if you don't get out into creation, if you watch your commercials, there's always some young, attractive person climbing a mountain or doing something. You're like, look how big that thing is. I love this picture. This was in Australia, right? And you see it, and it just makes me stop and say, this can't be an accident, right? And a lot of times, I think we need to be careful, though. We make it about us. When we see what God has made and put around us and how incredible it is, it isn't supposed to, we aren't supposed to focus on what it makes us feel. We're supposed to focus on what it says of the God who we worship. Not only did he make a place that we are placed in, he made it spectacular. He made it so that it takes your breath away. He made it so the details of it are so infinite and vast it keeps all those scientists occupied for years and years and years without ever finding the answer. It's wonderful. And it shows us of the character and nature of God himself. The next thing that this psalm tells us, it says, you know what? Yeah, those are our kids. And that's perfect, don't you think? I am going to put you in charge of this whole creation. But don't worry. Some of you are saying, I can't do it. He's saying, certainly you can do it. Because the way we're going to do it is we're going to be like children. We're not going to be like adults who use might, power, and greed to control and manipulate the world around them. We're going to be like the innocent children who use mercy and grace and energy and ignorance to get things done. Let me illustrate that to you. I could send up here, stand up here and try to manipulate you into running a booth at our carnival next week, huh? Say, you know, we really need this to happen. People aren't signing up for it. Uh, please join us. Um, and I, if you don't, I'm going to make you feel guilty for the rest of your life. Or I could just send David, Karras, and Jonathan to ask you, and you'd have a lot harder time saying no, huh? God says we can do it, but the way he does things sometimes is called an upside-down kingdom. 
An upside-down kingdom that, as Vince told us a couple weeks, doesn't require the powerful, the smart, and the manipulative. But this kingdom requires a poor spirit that knows you need God, huh? And it's primary tools that it uses to get things done and to change this world aren't money or military, but grace and mercy. And in God's kingdom that he's put us in control over, grace and mercy reign. We can do that, can't we? On our good days, we can. What do we make of this God? What kind of God is he? He is the God who made this creation and did it easy, right? I've already showed you or used the illustration of moving the microphone from one side to the other. He placed the planets into place just like I moved that microphone. But the other image in Psalm 8 that speaks to how easily God made this thing is when I consider your heavens the works of your fingers. My dad has been with me this week, and we were driving through the fields of Northern California and drove by orchards that we planted, and I was remembering all the holes we dug and the trees we planted and the shoveling we did, tree after tree after tree that took my whole body to do, right? took his whole body to do, and now it's having a consequence on his body, right, at this point. But when God made the universe, there's a a word for hand, yod, which includes from the fingertip to the elbow. But he doesn't use that word here. He uses the word for your fingertips. Why is that significant? Because he's basically saying that the creation in the heavens that we see are God's needlework. They don't require his back, his arms, his torso, or anything. He did them so easily and so beautifully, it looks more like my mom sitting in her chair at night doing her stitching than my dad and I planting an orchard, huh? That's who our God is. Not only is he powerful, but he pays attention to the beauty and the details and the intimacy of this creation. When I talk to Tammy about what she does, she says two things. Number one, we don't understand. It's way deeper than we could have ever imagined. And it's way more beautiful in its complexity than we ever give credit for. That's who our God is. He made this thing and he just needed his fingertips to do it. That's pretty cool, huh? But it gets better from here. What do we know about this God? David says, I look at the wonder of this world that he's created and the next thing that comes from his mouth is what is mankind that you are mindful of them or human beings that you care for them. Because I know who you are and what you're capable to do, the next most amazing thing that has happened here is you pay attention to us. And not us just as a big blob. I have a confession to make. I have twin boys, and I most of the time think of them as a singular unit, right? They have one church, one soccer team, one school, and they always go together. Our school split them up into classes, and Tammy and I were freaking out. Oh, no! Right? Uh, it's fine. They're fine. It was our problem, not theirs. God doesn't think of us like that. He doesn't think of us as one big glob of humanity running around that he has to keep organized and to practice at the right time. He knows the hairs on my head, which is easier for me than you, but he knows my needs and my soul and what makes me happy and what makes me sad. He knows just how hard to push me to get me to grow up 
but not so hard that I'll become dismaying. The God of all creation knows us, and He cares for us. And He gave us a position of honor in all of creation. My vet, Dr. Sheriff's here today, and he will attest to you that we own the cutest dog in the entire world. He, I should have had a picture of him, but I don't. But as cute as my dog is, he's still a dog. He is not a person. What this is telling us is that we as humans have been given a place of honor in all creation. Even though my dog is better looking than me, I am, I am still more important than he is. It's true. God loves us so much and he cares for us. In 1996, I was going with a, the church I was working at in the, or had come from in the Bay Area, and I was going on a missions trip to Romania. I was in seminary in Vancouver, and I had to call and talk to the pastor. And I called in, and I was just a college student when I was there before I left. And really, and so I called in, and the receptionist answered the phone and said, I, I said, this is Todd Cleek. And she goes, oh, hi, Todd. And I'm like, this, the, the lady who answered the phone is Grace, and I know her now. But I said, Grace, you remember me? And she's like, of course I remember you. And I can remember thinking in that moment how struck I was that this lady who was, I thought she was really old now. She's, she's no older than Don was at the t- is night now, right? <laughs> but she knew me. And I noticed, right? How much more important than if the God of all creation knows us. And he's given us a position in his dominion. And in doing so, he's given us a job, hasn't he? What's our job? And he made you rulers over the works of his hands and put everything under your feet. That's the language of kingship. Did you know that? To put something under your feet means that we are the kings of this, kings and queens of this creation. He's given us a job to be his regent in this world that he so beautifully made. He's given us a means to do it. We're supposed to do it like children. He's told you, you can do it because I love you. And he set us free in it, huh? Remember those questions we started with? Who is God and what is he like? Where did I come from? Am I important? He's answered them all, hasn't he? He's the God of wonderful creativity and compassion who made us before the creation of the world carefully in our mother's wombs and before that. And he says, you are so important that I am giving you the job to take care of the world that I've given you and given us a means to do it. That's who our God is. The last question then is how do I live or how should I pray maybe? Because those two things aren't that far apart. And Psalm 8 doesn't really give us a to-do list of how we should pray, does it? It really, um, if you want a to-do list for prayer, go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. That's the closest thing I think we have in the Scriptures for a do list of prayer. But what Psalm 8 does for us is Psalm 8 gives us an attitude of prayer, doesn't it? It shows us what our attitude should be like as we live in this world and we pray to God. And it's an attitude of confidence. 
we can be confident because we are known by the creator of this whole place. The one guy who's really important. We should have an attitude of confidence as we pray and we live our lives because we are not only known by him, we are the climax of the entire creation. You know, the last thing that happens in Genesis 1 is that he made them in his image. In his image he made them man and woman. And he placed them in the wonder of the thing that he made. He gave us a means to live this life. What are the tools that we should live it or how should we do it? We should do it like children. Using innocence, mercy and grace, not greed, power and anger. And he gave us a job to do. is to be his regents in this place. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we go representing him with the task to take care of one another in this world that he's put us into. That's how we should pray and live, huh? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.